like JT said, Mother's Day is really complex. Uh, we all come into it with different attitudes. And, and it's, it's okay. I want you to know that it's okay if you come into Mother's Day uh, in a mixture of celebration and grief. Right? Because uh, somewhere somebody told us that you can only feel one thing at one time. And they lied. <laughs> Big time. Uh, there you can feel ambivalent emotions. Like there's multiple things you can feel at once. And so uh, at our church, there's permission to feel and bring whatever you feel to the holiday. Uh, we celebrate the people who have mothered us uh, and the people who have mothered us in different ways. And so uh, whether you're somebody who uh, birthed a child, we're excited, we're thankful for you, whether you're somebody who lost a mom and you're feeling and experiencing a ton of grief, whether you're somebody who's like, man, I don't know about this Mother's, Mother's Day thing. I thought I would be celebrating and I'm not. Uh, you're welcome here. We'll carry that grief with you. But also I want to recognize that throughout the Bible, there were women who did not just birth children, but who spiritually mothered groups of people throughout the generations of the church. Uh, women who are saints, women who are celebrated, women who gave their lives to chastity, and yet uh, their legacy goes on and on and on throughout church history. And there are women all over the place uh, who that is the case for. And so I, I come today and I celebrate that uh, I come from a strong line of women leaders, women who have taught me things about life and faith. My Nana is the reason that I walk with Jesus. My grandma has taught me to be strong and generous. My mom has taught me to be uh, decisive, outgoing, hospitable. And my wife has taught me to be brave and courageous. And I'm incredibly thankful and I celebrate them greatly today. But I want to take a second because I've been formed by so many other women who have spiritually mothered me for long and short periods of my life. They've challenged me, they've befriended me, they've taught me, and they've shaped who I am today. And so Beth, Shayla, Jenny, Steph, Brittany, Courtney, Sierra, Sandy, Aaron, May, Lori, Hannah, Allie, Jess, Christy, Brooke, Jules, and Becca, all of these women have helped shape and form who I am. They've created space for me and I've benefited greatly from their friendship, wisdom, teaching, and challenge. You see, I believe that a church is best suited when every person who steps up here and takes a mic uh, is someone who we can learn from. So no matter who you are, what your gender is, uh, what your orientation, we believe you have something to teach us. And we believe uh, that we can celebrate and experience all the goodness that God has indwelt within you. And we can learn from you. And there have been many traditions that believe that that just might not be true. And I just want to start Mother's Day by saying, here we celebrate women. <laughs> we celebrate them, we honor them, and we learn from them. And I'm sure that you can think of a number of people in your life who have shaped the way that you experience Christianity or shaped the way uh, that you've become the person that you are, even on a more broad scale. People who have left a, a profound mark on your life. We can identify the ways that our lives would be incredibly different without them. And so what I want to do is I want to practice a little spiritual discipline here for a minute. And I want to take a couple minutes 
for you to take some time to list those people out. Maybe it's on the comment card that you may or may not turn into JT or I. Uh, but you need something to write with. Maybe you make it on a list on your phone. But I want to take one minute just for you to take a couple of a couple a, a short time to list who are like five people who have had the most profound influence on who you are today. Five people. Take a second. On Mother's Day, maybe it's five women. <laughs> Take a second to see who are the people that have greatly shaped your life, that without them in your life, you would be different. As you list those people out, what we're going to do is we're going to hold space for gratitude because uh, these people have shaped us. They've formed us. Uh, they've invited us in. They've created space in your life, and they've said, you are so important that I've made room in my heart for you. <laughs> and so take a second to thank God. Take a second, bow your head, close your eyes, whatever it is that you want to do. Just take a second to hold them. These people have invited you in, and you are changed because of it. You are shaped and formed differently because of them. And we're grateful. I'm grateful that uh, something about those people shaped you that you would show up here this morning. <laughs> because it's something about those people who said, hey, something about this is valuable enough to come to. Come to. And so let's take a second and just hold gratitude. God, we thank you for these people. You've created them. You've made them. You have created them to shape our lives. They are vital influences on who we are, who we are becoming, and who we will be. God, we thank you for that. And so this morning, thank you. I thank you specifically uh, for the mothers and for women who have spiritually mothered me and shaped me to be the man that I am today. God, would you bless them this morning? Amen. You see, oftentimes when I think about uh, shaping and forming what we think or do, I think that we give ourselves too much credit. I think that we subtly believe that we're way more logical than we actually are. Because um, the question uh, oftentimes that uh, people go to uh, in Christianity is, how does the Bible shape what you believe? And yeah, that's true. I think the Bible does shape what I believe. But I think the bigger question is, who shapes your belief 
for the Christian life or who shapes your idea of the Christian life and what shapes your vision for the Christian life. So who shapes your vision for the Christian life and what shapes your vision for the Christian life? These are the two big questions that we're going to be talking about today. Last, uh, the last couple weeks, JT has been talking about uh, this internal reality of what the church should look like and then this external reality of what the church should look like. And uh, today is going to be a call to action. So I get to do one of the things that I love to do most, and that is just motivate. <laughs> if I, I love, like, it is my dream to give, like, the halftime speech. <laughs> like, I think I was made to do it. And sometimes Megan and I do it together, and I want to run through a brick wall. Like, I believe I can sometimes after she does it. I can't, I won't, but I believe I can. Again, I'm not a logical being all the time. The reality is, is that this morning we carry a lot of things when we think about bringing it all together because there are a lot of things, orthopraxy and doctrine that have been given to us uh, that have hurt and harmed and been weaponized and used in ways that bring guilt, uh, angst, and a lot of fear. And I don't know how many times I've heard it in the past year, but all the time they're like, the Bible talks about fear like 365 times, don't have it, right? And yet somehow we can provide all the methodology to make people scared enough that they think God might not love them if they don't do the things that we talked about. And so I wish I could just stand up here and be like, go and do it, you know what I mean? Like, Man, I want to give the motivational talk of just if we go out and we try harder and we do better, we'll win the game. But crap, that doesn't get to happen. And that's okay. Because I think the Christian life is more than just what happens in my local game of basketball or my hero game of basketball that I play with a bunch of friends that I am the leading scorer one game and I think I'm amazing at. Uh, that's just not the case. No, the Christian, the vision for the Christian life is so much more. And integrating the internal and external realities of these things are so important to understanding who the church should be and what we should be about. You see, the thing is, is we should have a view of the Christian life that is shaped and formed by a vision that captures our hearts and lifts our eyes to dream. I'm not here because somebody told me I should be at church on Sunday. I'm here because I actually believe that resurrection happened, that Jesus rose from the dead, that he beat death, and that because of that victory, I can know and follow him, and I believe that there is a God who sent his son to sacrifice himself so that I could find true life now. But man, do we get really petty and minuscule with our vision of what church should look like. We miss it. But what if we actually lifted our eyes and we caught a vision for something that was bigger than ourselves, something that made our hearts sing, something that we looked to, that we dreamt about, that in the morning when I got up made me take my breath and be thankful I'm alive? Wouldn't that be something I would want to be a part of? But like I said, sometimes ideas and methodologies get hijacked and go haywire. And what once was beautiful feels forgotten and almost repulsive. 
unfortunately, bad orthopraxy and doctrine have, may have soured your vision for a Christian life or soured your vision of God. I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you're saying, man, this, this whole Christian thing is, is weird. I'm with you. It can be. Uh, but I'm also here to say there's something about Jesus that I can't shake. And so I keep coming back. I keep wanting to explore. I, I keep wanting to dig in. I keep wanting to be curious. I keep wanting to ask questions about if there is this God, if Jesus is who he says he is, then there is something about my life that has to be so wrapped up in this world, in this vision for the Christian life, that I can't shake it. And so I want to know, what is that vision? What does that life look like? Because a lot of times, I think what we've experienced is old religious practice that's literally just throwing itself into the casket and we might as well bury it, it's dead. How many churches have we stepped into where the, the parameters and boundaries that are set keep people out? When Jesus sat and ate with anybody and everybody, regardless of their social status, regardless of who they were or who they were perceived to be, Jesus found a way to say, you're welcome here. And I think that, uh, especially in our culture right now, there's this movement to kind of deconstruct faith. And you hear a lot of people who say, don't do that. That's bad. And I don't think it is. I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sense of all the different ways in which uh, the real Jesus has been hijacked by all these different entities to tell us all these different things and all these different ways of doing things that actually aren't in the Bible. But here's the thing. I... I won't say I'm an expert, but I actually got to take a, a grad class this last semester, and I was really surprised because literally the entire class was studying a theory. And I hesitate to say it out loud because it makes some people nervous, and it makes some people panic, and it makes some political pundits wet themselves. Um, but we're going to talk about it because it's a real thing, and because it's the basis for deconstruction. We're going to talk about critical theory. Yes, the recording. Critical theory. <laughs> Uh, I got to study it, and I'm going to tell you something. I think critical theory is something that is so useful. It is so useful. Oh, my gosh. It is so useful. And I say that because I think whether you hear people talk, tweet, text, whatever about it, they don't actually know what it is. And so what I want to do is I want to explain a little bit what it is. Uh, we're not going to get too technical. But what I want to do is I want to connect it to the scriptures, because it does. Critical theory is this idea that humans should flourish. There's this Greek term called eudaimonia, and literally the term means human flourishing. Human flourishing. What critical theory says is I want every person any person who's been marginalized, who's on the outskirts, I want to find a way for them to flourish. And so what critical theory does, it says, we aren't there yet. So what do we need to do? We need to critique the things that are already in place so that we can get to a place of experiencing eudaimonia. Here's the thing, though. In Christianity, what we've done is we've taken critical theory and we call it deconstruction, right? Because we're critiquing all the different ways that these doctrines haven't worked out and haven't been fair. 
And that's a good thing. But here's the thing that I think we mistake oftentimes in Christianity is that we deconstruct and we don't reconstruct. You see, in critical theory, most of the articles that I read say, here's the problem, here's what's happening, here's what we need to do away with, but then they say, here's what we're going to do instead. Or here's what I propose this alternate choice or this alternate thing should be like looking moving forward. I think in Christianity, oftentimes what we do is we deconstruct all sense of belief, and then we look and we go, what now? And that actually isn't healthy. Like, it actually just leaves us in a place of purposeless and senselessness. And whether you deconstruct Christianity or any other point of life, one of the guys, is, his name is Max Horkheimer, who was one of the guys who kind of put forward this theory, even he would say to, to kind of tear something down and not put something in its place is an unfair reality because it leaves someone purposeful and sense, senseless. And no matter who you are, all humans desire some sense of purpose, some sense of equity, some sense of flourishing. We all have this deep desire to flourish. And so all this deconstruction is saying is, how do we get to a place where every person who sits in our space flourishes? I actually think that Jesus gave this kind of really important sermon in Matthew 5 through 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, he didn't just tell you, here's how you do really good things, and here's how you do really bad things. No, what he did is he gathered the people who followed him and said, here's what a flourishing life should look like. Jesus presented eudaimonia before eudaimonia was a theory. Jesus said, hey, there are things, some of these Jewish practices that actually need to be picked apart, deconstructed, so that we can build better things to create human flourishing. And so, over and over and over again, I think the scripture is after human flourishing. And so, we don't need to be scared when people talk about that's critical theory. Because there are a lot of boogeymen who really like to talk about it, right? I mean, Twitter is, don't search it on Twitter. It is a rabbit hole of despair. Don't be on Twitter. I actually don't, I deleted my Twitter, but if you're still on Twitter, don't search this. Because it is a rabbit hole of despair. Ever, the world is imploding because of critical theory. And yet, if we actually take time to study it, we actually might look and find that the God of the Bible wants humans to flourish. Like, it's his whole thing. It's the vibe. And yet we miss it. We miss it. We miss it. One, one after another, we deconstruct and we leave this kind of empty void with nothing to fill it. But might I say, like, what if we approached eudaimonia under Jesus? What if we said Jesus can handle the deconstructing of all of these different beliefs, and yet he remains, because he is actually the source of eudaimonia. You see, there's this vision throughout the scriptures of what the world will look like. Really, the, the book of Revelation is literally just a vision. Like, I'm not a literalist, so I don't think, like, 
three-headed dragons are like coming out and biting people and stuff like that. I think it's a vision of a guy who is stranded on an island. Uh, and so there are some things happening. Uh, but I think that in that vision, there is so much beauty and goodness. And the vision that actually is put forward in the book of Revelation is eudaimonia. It's human flourishing. It's how do we get to a place where every person stands around the throne of Jesus and worships him? How do we get to a place where is that the goal of the human life? That we would be so centered on the person of Jesus that we actually could experience human flourishing now. It's not just a thing to be had that's out there or that's coming, but it's something that we can actually grasp, hang on to, and create spaces where that happens. Juxtaposed to the world, where it seems like everybody's wrestling for a zero-sum game. Right, the zero-sum bias says that more for me equals less for you, and less, more for you equals less for me. Therefore, I can't be for my brother. But that's a lie. The zero-sum bias actually keeps us from experiencing human flourishing. What if the Bible says that I flourish only when you flourish? What if the Bible says that we flourish as community? Not in isolation, not as an individual, but flourishing is actually found in the group of people who love and serve God together because they know God and they know what he loves. And so this morning, I, I go, go here often and I talk about deconstruction a lot because a lot of people have said it's unfair, it's not good, and I don't believe that. But today, I preface a lot of this for a really big reason, because we're going to go to a passage today uh, that speaks to and brings together both the internal and external realities of what we've been talking about. Yet this passage has been used as a weapon put forward to create guilt, lies, hurry, and chaos in Christian spaces. And originally, that's what it did to me. But I've wrestled with it. I've taken time to, I think, deconstruct some of the things that aren't good. And I want to put forward a, a bigger vision for us. One that I think we can live into. And one that I think we can get behind and be a part, and be a part of as God's people. And so we're going to look at the Great Commission. Matthew 28. 18 to 20. It says, Then Jesus came to them, that's his disciples, and he said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, growing up, I knew this verse was really important. I was told it was the linchpin of my faith because my job was to go and make converts. I needed a lot of people to pray this really special prayer uh, that somehow would be this like flick of a switch in their hearts where they would suddenly be like, yes. And the more people I got to do that, the more credibility I gained. But it left me feeling really sour. like oh gosh, if I do anything but go out and share my faith, like, am I really that good of a Christian? 
It made me hurry up. It made me lose the humanity of people. There was a movement when I was uh, in college that, uh, that everybody was getting these stickers and some people were getting very dedicated that tattoos. That was a 116 on the 911. Romans 116 says, uh, I believe in the power of the gospel for it is the power of salvation for all who believe. And there was this whole movement of people who would be like 116 on the 911. You got to do everything you can. This is a state of emergency, folks. 116, Romans 116. People were getting tattoos and I was sitting there, I was going, this is weird. You're going to regret that tattoo. This is strange. But it was like a whole movement. And I was, in some degree, I was caught up in it. I wanted, I, 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 it was a good Christian thing for me to go out and let everyone know. And I don't think that that's bad. I think it's incomplete. Because I would keep coming back to this verse. What is, what is this thing? Why, why do I feel this way? I, I can't really say or express that I have guilt. Because here's the thing, like the organization I work for is kind of like whole built on this whole like idea that like you make disciples and you got to go do this. And so I just kept rereading it and rereading it and again and again and again. And I couldn't shake one word. Disciples. And I asked myself, what is a disciple? What is it? What is it? In the Bible, the disciples were simply people who saw Jesus and followed him. And oh crap, that changed a lot of my reality. That all of a sudden, all these things that I had felt really guilty about, that I wasn't moving quickly enough, all of a sudden just receded. <laughs> because here's the thing, if I actually am in the business of wanting people to see Jesus and follow him, that's way more complex than getting people to pray a prayer. That's way more complex than getting somebody to raise their hand at a church service. It's way more complex, right? Following Jesus takes time. It takes our lives. Like literally Philippians talks about that he who began a good work in you is going to see it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Like that probably dictates a lifetime. I believe that Salvation happens in a moment where we discover who Jesus is and we decide we want to commit our lives to him. But it doesn't stop. It's a process. And becoming a disciple isn't just getting somebody to say, hey, good, you checked that box. Way to go, man. Now here's box number two. No, but there's a process of what it means to be shaped and deeply formed. And believe it or not, that happens through people. That happens through people that look differently than me, think differently than, differently than me, practice differently than me. And one day I, I moved up to Cleveland and we started going to another church and uh, I finally heard this vision. And it was something that just lifted my eyes. It compelled me. It invigorated me. It, it stirred within me something that just said, that is what I want. That is what I'm after. Because for so long, I had been chasing this phantom. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't know if you know the phantom of the Christian faith. It's the person who, like, prays without ceasing, right? And the person who, like, 
does everything in the church and is like the most visible person. And yet like they're the person who everyone goes to for wisdom. And you're like, crap, why can't I just be a little wiser? Oh, I wish I would have said that thing that someone said in their sermon. Like, yo, that's a really good bit. I should have written that book. You know, and it's like all of a sudden you kind of chase this. Well, here are all the things that I should be. Because, right, we're all things to all people, which we've translated to, I need to know it all. I need to be it all. I need to do it all. Well, that's not exactly, that's not at all what it's saying. No, there's a vision for this Christian life that is so much more formative than that. I was shared the vision of Revelation 5, 9 through 14. And this vision connected with the passage in the Grape Commission, it's something that I can't shake. It's something that I, uh, it's the reason I still do what I do. Because I, I just can't shake it. And I want this to be the Christian life that's described here. I want to live into this reality. And to give some context, uh, there, there's this vision of a scroll. And the elders and the people in the book of Revelation, they can't open the scroll. But they said, who can open the scroll? Who will be the one that undoes this? And comes forward the Lamb. The lamb who had been slain. And again, I'm not a literalist, so I believe the lamb is Jesus, because this would get weird if we were literally talking about a lamb. It says, I saw a lamb, Jesus, who had been slain, who could take the keys and open the scroll. And when he opened it, the people sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and tens of thousands, uh, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard from every creature on heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Might it be that only Jesus can be the one who can unlock the keys to the beauty of human flourishing in the Christian life. Because he is the one with his blood who has purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. He's the one who's made you and I to be a kingdom of priests who serve our God together. And I couldn't help envision what this looked like. The most important room in my house is the family room. It's the place where we go 
we gather, we sit, we talk, we experience the highs and lows of life. It's the place where we go, where, uh, where I've experienced celebrating some of the biggest celebrations and some of the depths of grief with my family and my friends. It's the place I remember watching Game 7 of the World Series when Cleveland, right after we won it, turned around and was in the World Series and all the Cavs are in the, sta- are in the stands and we are just going nuts and all of my friends are gathered in my tiny living room sitting on makeshift chairs and God knows what else so we can watch this game together as we're cheering and laughing and celebrating and then utterly grieving together. But when I think about Revelation 5, I can't help but think that in my living room, I want there to be all the people from all the nations, from all the tribes, from all the peoples, and from all the places that God has purchased. And I want to sit with them in a space like this. And I want to look across the aisle and I want to see somebody who's in a state of amazing celebration and I want to celebrate with them in that space. And then I want to look and I want to find somebody who's experiencing deep grief and I want to say, let's cry together. We're here. We're with you. There's this image of a family room where you take off your shoes, you come and sit down, and you live together. The Great Commission says, go and make disciples. What if the Christian life and your vision for it was a family room? And that family room was a place where there were couches endlessly sitting around you where people would come and gather and get a vision for life that says, isn't this what Jesus so created for our flourishing? That we would experience all of life's ups and downs together. That we would experience people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. That we would see people in our culture who you would look across the way and say, I didn't know you would be here. And in traditional Christian spaces, I didn't think you could be here. And yet you are. Why? Because the family room is the place where all of us bring all of ourselves, all the junk, and we say, this is not going well. Or this is so great. Come celebrate with me. Let's gather in the family room. Christians are people of the family room. We want there to be space for everyone to come in and make themselves at home. And you might say, well, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, here's the thing. If I think that there's a vision for this that says people from every people, tribe, tongue, nation are going to be there, then I think not everybody gets there the same way. What if, and I I have a picture up there because I don't think you can just uh, be in a small uh, space. I think uh, you can go to the next picture. There we go. I don't think you can be in a small space. Like I don't, I, you could cram everyone into my like 1100 square foot home that I used to live in. 
That living room is a very small space. I think you need something like a mansion. And I like this image because notice that there's a bunch of porticos, right? Now I want you to imagine together that each of those porticos are a different way to get into the house. Each of them are a different language that's being spoken, a different uh, cultural reality that people are facing. All of them need to hear something different to connect with the idea that God might be about their flourishing. What if the living room was connected to a bunch of front doors? And those front doors were all the different ways in which uh, the message of Jesus and an invitation to follow him was fashioned so that people could uniquely hear about the love of God in something that was their heart language. That they could hear about it and they would catch a vision that says, wow, that lifts my eyes. That hits my heart. I want to be a part of that. But yet so often, we've had such a vanilla picture of the Christian life that there is one way to do it. There is one way to say it. There is one way to approach it. We miss the global identity of our Christian faith. That if we really believe that the Great Commission says, make disciples of all nations, that we actually take serious all nations. And we actually take serious disciples. That the internal realities would match our external realities. That people would want to be a part of what's going on because they hear the gospel in their heart language. They want to connect to it. And then they want to come into the living room and they want to share all the things that are going on in their life. And they say, we connect deeply here, but we got here through different spaces and avenues, and yet we share the same living room. Imagine what that could be like. Imagine a living room that provides depth, safety, and challenge, but the entryways are uniquely personalized invitations to come join the party inside. But I want to take it a step further. Because what if the entries to the house weren't just a building, but what if they were the people? What if you were a front door to the Christian faith? What if somebody wanted to know what it looked like to live the Christian life? And they say, how do I get there? And they say, well, who do I know that follows? And it's you. What if God has uniquely wired you, not just to be somebody who invites people to church, but to actually speak a unique language for people to know and understand the love of God? And here's the thing. I'm not in a hurry chasing down every open door. No, I know that I've been uniquely fashioned, designed, and wired to be somebody who can take this message of the love of God to people. And so I don't need to be 116 on the 911. I still know. I believe in the power of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation for all who would believe. But you know what? I believe that God is a patient God. I believe God that is a God of perfect timing. And I know that he's going to be and go before me in every situation. Whether or not we believe it, we believe in something called provenient grace or common grace. And all that means is that we actually believe that God exists not just in here or in here, but he exists out there. And that he actually is indwelling the lives of all the things that we encounter. And because we, we encounter that in that specific way, that we actually are people who are impacting the world around us, who go and can function as a front door, but we don't do it as people who are constantly running down from person to person, dehumanizing somebody just so they can enter in. No, we take time with them. 
Jesus takes time with them. He didn't just run from town to town. No, he said, come in, eat with me. Let's take some time. <laughs> you want to be a part of what I'm doing? Come, follow me. It was a simple invitation. You see, I think we all are kind of working our way through a cycle of discipleship. And I want to be a part of a disciple-making community. And so I've, I've been working on this and developing it and, and taking some folks through it. And, I, and, I, and I, I am more committed to this idea of the Christian life than I ever have been. And, and that's just that I, I think what we're after is something that looks like this. That first there's an invitation to come and see what, who Jesus is and what he has done. And then when we say, yes, I want to experience that, we're, we're formed. We're formed deeply. We align part of our lives around Jesus and what he desires. And after that, we're, we're participants. We, we go and we say, hey, who else can I invite to be a part of what God is doing? And finally, I said, hey, how can I multiply the ways that God has been shaping me? The thing is, we all have benefited from, from somebody who have said, how can I multiply the ways that God is shaping me? You and I are all in this room because someone has thought it worthy enough. Because somebody has taken the Great Commission and said, I'm not in a hurry. I just want you to follow Jesus. Here's what I think that can look like. And so here's the invitation today. Would you be invited to see Jesus anew and to see his mission afresh? That this internal reality is shaped by where we want people to belong in the living room. And our external reality is shaped by these different entrances to come inside the house. That when I look at somebody in this room, I see 20 different ways, 15 different ways for people to come and know and follow Jesus. I don't just see a building. I don't just see a bunch of entrances. I see the value and what God has brought together, that we, as people who live for the betterment of our world, for human flourishing, can go into a world and say, there actually is eudaimonia to be found. And that eudaimonia is found under the person of Jesus. And I want every person to come and experience flourishing under my King, Jesus. The world is all out there trying to achieve human flourishing. Mark Sayers says they want a kingdom without a king. And yet, Jesus has been going after human flourishing for centuries. The God of the Bible has been going after human flourishing for I don't even know how long. And so often we miss. And oftentimes we can miss. And, and for good reason, we can feel alienated and isolated because we've been harmed by people who think, only human flourishing can be happening by this very, very distinct way of doing things. No. What if we actually took on the words of Jesus, who was the one who said all authority has been given to him? Last thing I heard, no one else has the authority to tell us who's in and who's out. All God did was say, you have the authority to invite people to know and follow Jesus. We borrow the wrong authority. God's authority is the authority to save you. It's the authority to make you belong. No one takes that away. The never-changing God of the universe who loves you eternally and 
relentlessly has said, no one has the authority to say where you belong. If you follow me, you are welcome in the living room. Come, take a seat. There's space for you here. The authority that the Christian has is the authority to say, I belong to Jesus and I know that you can too. Not because of anything I've done, but because God made a space for me to be in the living room when I didn't think I deserved one. So would we be people of the living room? Would we build the house of faith together that the people who come and experience the goodness of God would not experience barrier upon barrier to knowing what this life is like, but that they would experience it with depth and safety and challenge and care because we desire to be people of the living room, people who say, hey, there is space for you to come and make a home for yourself here. What if we needed a bigger and bigger house because people followed Jesus because they were compelled by a vision of that Jesus. Of a Jesus who has a ever-loving, never-stopping, never-giving-up love for you. That's the every story in the Jesus Storybook Bible ends with that line, that there is a Jesus who has this relentless, pursuing love that never gives up, that always wants to find a place for people. Would we be those people? Would we want and have a vision of the Christian life that is shaped by Jesus? Because who shapes our vision of the Christian life? People who I hope have been influenced by Jesus. And what shapes our vision of the Christian life? I hope it's thus a vision that I want everyone to be there. And I hope that we can see as we gather in this space that we tried to make just even a little glimpse of what a family room might look like that you look across from yourself, you look across from the other people and you say, yeah, I'm so glad you're here. I can't wait to know you. I can't wait to experience eudaimonia with you.